Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbley, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, go to biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. I believe it's Bruce Damer. Hello, Hello Bruce. Off. Good to talk to you. It's been an awfully long time. How things been? It certainly has. Things have been pretty hectic. Um, I'm now preparing for tomorrow night's Yuri's Night a World Space Party, and we have a version of that happening at NASA Ames Research Center, and I'm going to be on stage at about 11 o'clock talking about near-Earth objects and asteroids uh, and how they're the future of life, uh, past and future. Yes, I was listening to a podcast just a couple of days ago, um, The Future and You, actually, which a number of our listeners apparently listen to as well. Uh, and they were discussing your uh, your near-Earth, um, uh, you know, bringing in and mining in the um, gravitational pull. It was fascinating to hear a, a Daimler idea reiterated by a, a, another. Um, it's amazing stuff. We have our second caller. Hello. Hello, Hello second caller. Is that Jeffrey? It's- it's Jeffrey. Hi. Hi. So, are you going to make your good news public, Jeffrey? What the Internet Archive? Why not? Sure. I'm working there now. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Which may give you a little bit of time to uh, a little bit of quality time, should I say, <laughs> to uh, to work on the open source version of the uh, gene pool? Not necessarily. I, I was kind of uh, not working. Um, I had a little bit more time beforehand, and now I have less time, but I'm uh, still working hard at it, so either way. It, does the project have a, a new name at all, or will it still be called GenePool? Oh, it's still called GenePool right now. Okay. Although I'd like to make um, a few other pieces of it. I, I had floated the name Dawkins Puddle for a period of time. <laughs> Dawkins Puddle. I like <laughs> I'm not that. sure. I'm not sure whether that will catch on, but I, I put my vote in for Dawkins Puddle. Well, um, for you both, we, we had some news and notes. Uh, am I right in assuming that Graytham Silicon Valley is now Graytham San Francisco for the near future? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what you guys have uh, discussed since I last emailed you. Is that correct, Bruce? Oh, I, I'm assuming it'll be in a place that, that fits for sort of the, the initial group. Uh, right. I I can I will be up there on the 24th of uh, April. I don't know if that's too too soon for you, uh, Jeffrey. 24th of April. Let me look up my schedule. Um, while you look up your schedule, Jeffrey, why don't I go through additional news and notes, and we can reconvene on uh, Scott Schaefer's uh, YouTube, which I think cool. probably relates to Graytham, San Francisco, as well. Um, well, Graytham-related news. Actually, before before I begin on the Graytham-related news. Bruce, do you want to do next Friday as a kind of Evo Grid update discussion? Certainly. Next Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, then, folks, we are going to do an update on the Evo Grid project uh, with Bruce. I'll try to get it for 90 minutes so we can really expand on it. Um, Local Radio is currently telling me that uh, an hour on Friday nights is all that we should be allocated. Um, so next Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, I believe it's the 18th of April, we will be discussing the Evo Grid. And there's been a lot of correspondence and a lot of new ideas that's kind of been thro- flowing through mailing lists and discussions you've had with people, wasn't there, Bruce? Oh, yeah, it's, um, it's a lot to, to absorb, and I've got a lot to report. Yeah. It, it looks like a pretty well a full-time task, just keeping up with the mailing lists and the various ideas that are flying around. It seems to have... Uh, 
hit a nerve um, that this is maybe the time to do this kind of thing. Definitely, definitely. Well, additional Greytham-related news. Um, nothing from Greytham London, however, there may be an informal get-together uh, in London, uh, and there may also be an informal get-together in Washington, D.C. I hear a number of... Uh, Iota Live Sinist will be congregating in Washington, D.C. I don't have the exact dates, but I understand um, that uh, Travis, uh, Robert Rice, and Gerald DeYoung, uh, together with Justin Lyon, will all be congregating on Washington, D.C. I was hoping to have one of those uh, folks call in tonight uh, so they could confirm the exact dates. Grayson Boston, we gave out 20 uh, Biota CDs, so if anyone from... Uh, Grayson Boston is listening in for the first time, or anyone else for that matter. The number to call in is 646-200-0640. And those CDs in Boston were a kind of test, a beta test with regards to handing out CDs at A-Life 11. We got the news this week that we have permission to hand out Biota CDs at A-Life 11, which would be wonderful. They're estimating about 300, uh, sorry, 250 people, um, but we'll probably get them 300. So the undergraduates at Southampton University, I think, in the UK, or the, um, I think it's at Southampton. I'm probably completely wrong. So from the last show, there was lots of feedback, and I was hoping that Justin would call in this evening or that we could do a part two in either a chat form or another bio to live. I kind of summarized the questions to four main questions, which I put back to Justin today. Uh, the questions were, could an open source, that is a true open source model, work for Simudyne? Justin, from his correspondence, said that that wasn't the case. It may just be his current thinking. Um, the second question, what happens to the value of contributed intellectual property in the Simudyne model? That was something that we didn't explicitly discuss in the last podcast. The third question, how can you assess um, if you want to join, uh, I guess, Simudyne in this case, based on an opaque information model? How do uh, the numbers of folks involved pollute the wealth generation model? These were all submitted by listeners. And the final one uh, related to long-term research. Um, if clients are paying for time and this creates the development priority, doesn't this preclude the generation of anything that will be long-term productive because the model isn't strategically designed for that kind of development? So as you can see, quite a bit of correspondence, and these are the ones that I was able to uh, get permission to read out on this podcast. Additional news from listeners. Uh, Matt Powell sent me a link to a genetic programming book uh, which is available online under the Creative Commons license. It will go in the show notes for this episode. So if you want to check out that, go to biota.org slash podcast and you will see. And thanks very much to Matt Powell for submitting that link. It looks like a fascinating book. He also said that I should contact the folks that had put it together in the UK for participating in future biota-related stuff. And I think that's a, a stellar idea, Matt. Thank you very much. Um, from San Francisco, Scott Schaefer. Do either of you know Scott Schaefer? I don't think I've met Scott, no. He's been following Biota for quite a few years. He lives um, in a very picturesque part of San Francisco, the, what do you call them now? My mind's gone completely blank. The boats on the water area of San Francisco, the marina. Exquisite set of photos on um, Facebook of his accommodation that looks highly conducive to designing artificial life-related stuff. He sent me a link with regards to um, some of his stuff that's on YouTube. I will put that in the show notes as well. So as you can see, we've had a number of folks corresponding in this week, some that want to be named and others that don't. But if you would like to submit a topic for Biota Live, 
please get in contact. Email me, tom at noblape.com. And if we select a topic for the show, you could receive one of the following books. The Ancestor's Tale by Richard Dawkins, I Was by Steve Wozniak and Gina Smith, Ever Since Darwin by Stephen Jay Gould, and the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy are all up for grabs. Now, Biota's um, long-term friend, Dr. Dave, has a thing on his uh, podcast on Shrinkwrap Radio where if folks submit comments into iTunes, he will send them books, and I'm considering this as well. We received our first iTunes review, and as I corresponded with Gerald Young um, over the past couple of days, I realized that these iTunes reviews are done regionally, so folks listening in, in in Europe and the UK and Australia and Asia and these kind of areas may not be able to see the first iTunes review. Um, kind of mixed review. Um, basically, the fellow said that I obviously showed uh, a lot of passion and enthusiasm with regards to the topic. However, he was a little concerned with the audio quality, and I think when we decided to move to Blog Talk Radio, I kind of anticipated that the audio quality would take a bit of a hit. However, it's the quantity, not the audio quality, and the ability to have folks like Jeffrey and Bruce on calls, and folks like Justin and Robert Rice and Travis, and uh, all the folks that have contributed to Biota Live so far. So, unfortunately, it was a bit of a swap for audio quality versus active participation. However, I would like to recommend that folks who are listening to this podcast and like this podcast, please write reviews in iTunes. Um, it basically gives the folks at Apple uh, the feedback that people are actually listening to this podcast and enjoying it. And I, I don't know, there's a little bit of mythos associated with this, but it probably will push the podcast further up some ranking and maybe give it an icon that folks can click on. Um, additional minor news, I've been, um, I've been communicating with the folks at Project Lifeboat, um, who folks have been participating in the Biota mailing list and also the Grayson mailing list may remember the A Prize from probably 18 months ago now. The A Prize is still ongoing. I think they've released, uh, they've, um, been able to generate about $28,000 worth of funding for the A Prize. So I'm hoping to have uh, someone or a group of people from the A Prize potentially in a bio to chat, potentially on a future live. Um, however, the ball's in their court with regards to that. I corresponded with them over the past day or so with regards to various components. The question this week is, where's the secret source? It's a discussion with regards to whether there can be proprietary models for artificial life that will move uh, the artificial life community forward with regards to uh, discussions and ideas. The topic was submitted by Adam Irimenko, who folks will remember from the first EvoGrid discussion from Greytham, Boston. I'll read just a couple of paragraphs from Adam's email and then we can get started. For folks interested in calling in, the number is 646-200-0640. Adam writes, I used to wonder why people like Carl Sims and Stephen Wolfram were so unapproachable. It seemed like the people doing real and mature things in the tech industry are almost impossible to talk to. We've tried to get folks like Carl to come and give talks at Graytham to no avail, for example, despite the fact that his office is literally two or three blocks from where we meet in Cambridge. Likewise, the folks at Icosystem and other artificial life complexity simulation-related companies in the Boston area. I don't really wonder anymore, since I've learned that if you have even the tiniest amount of value attached to yourself, be it intellectual property, name recognition, a site that gets a lot of hits, 
or even a modicum of academic credibility, you have to be careful about what you say, who you associate with, and what you endorse. If you have anything of value, being totally open about it is like walking through a bad neighborhood dressed to the hilt. You're going to attract attention, and much of it is not going to be nice. So from that, I had uh, quite a bit of discussion with Adam about um, models of, of proprietary uh, companies and uh, in this case individuals attached to these companies and why they wouldn't be communicating and what was distilled from that correspondence was an idea of the secret source. Now I spelled it S-A-U-C-E, however it could have been equally spelt S-O-U-R-C-E, um, but in this case it relates to proprietary models um, with regards to artificial life. Whether the secret source already exists and folks like Carl Sims or Stephen Wolfram have had access to the secret source or whether the secret source will exist in the future. So, Bruce, you and I have had quite a bit of correspondence with Carl Sims in the past uh, three, four years. What's your view with regards to, to Carl Sims and do you think he has found some secret source associated with artificial life? Well, I think what he chose to do, uh, you know, his body of work is very extensive and include the, the evolving virtual creatures, those famous blocky creatures that included uh, sort of genetic cross-dissolves. He chose, you know, it's interesting, he did a broad range of work in sort of in the inspired artificial life genre, and then he chose one aspect of it, which was uh, sophisticated image manipulation to start the Sapphire uh, Plugins company. And... I think he he realized that that would be a way forward, and it's it's kind of it's kind of ironic because a lot of us um, we do kind of quote unquote normal careers for a while, and then we have more time and we have more vision, and we do artificial life, which doesn't seem to lead to uh, commercial ventures. <coughs> and Carl did the opposite way; he did all this innovative artificial life work early on, and then chose a very narrow aspect to turn into a business. And I don't think he would, of course, he wouldn't refer to Sapphire plugins as an artificial life tool at all. It's, uh, but certainly inspired by his work on genetic cross dissolves, uh, uh, and it's become a successful business and won awards and, and and been a good investment of his time. Yeah, I mean, certainly my analysis with regards to Carl Sims, and some of this comes through our communication with Rudy Rucker as well, is and ultimately Steve Grant too is that they're not uh, currently doing work, although with Steve Grant maybe less so, that's explicitly related to the kind of artificial life discussions that we have in the Biota podcast. Now, what I've, the feedback that I've given to, to both Carl and obviously to Steve uh, was that their um, historical relevancy and the fact that they would be greeted with a great degree of respect would probably outweigh the concerns that they had with regards to no longer being part of you know, a broader artificial life community are able to talk on contemporary aspects of artificial life, which was always my understanding with regards to uh, Carl Sims in particular. Um, although that may change. He may actually um, come onto a, a chat in the near future. But my feeling is that these people, their, their lack of current and contemporary discussion doesn't relate to the fact that they discovered something that they have to keep quiet or secretive. It's in fact just a discussion with regards to um, what we talk about currently versus their previous experiences and what you know what their recollections of uh, artificial life development have been. I mean, certainly my experience with Steve Grand was one of six months worth of 
kind of nurturing him into the sense that I wasn't going to start talking about contemporary papers or contemporary theories. I was actually far more fascinated with um, his thinking processes, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, his vision with regards to certain aspects of neural networks, various low-level programming questions that were cut from um, what appeared in the podcast feed, various open source and those kind of contemporary methodology questions that I also cut from the feed um, because I didn't think they were fair to really put him into that kind of scope of discussion. So I think my feeling with regards to these folk who may not be currently appearing at Grey Thumbs or talking in you know, what we do here, it's not that they have discovered something that they need to keep secretive. It's aspects of their life have moved on from talking about artificial life specifically, and they don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about it in a kind of contemporary setting. Does that sound right to you, Bruce? Yeah, I think that, you know, for example, Tom Ray, um, you know, the creator of Tierra, he went on to into the bioinformatics field. You know, and I, I think that because there's a source of funding and it was considered a, a you know, a good field, uh, still is, and slightly related to what he's done before. Uh, but I, I think that then, you know, it's almost like you, you go on to another phase of your life and, and you, a lot of people just don't want to talk about their previous uh, lives or work mm. as much. I mean, they're, uh, I'm the kind of person who will talk endlessly about all the different phases of the work that I've done, but... Uh, perhaps I'm I'm uh, more immodest uh, than some of the other people who I, I I tend to think the people in the artificial life field are fairly modest characters and not that. What, what would you think, Jeffrey? Well, I think there are all kinds of characters involved for sure, and I also think that artificial life can mean different things to um, a person um, over the decades. Um, and, um, you know, oftentimes somebody will do a certain body of work that, that uh, contributes to the field, and then they move on to other things, as, as people do and should, as, as uh, researchers and artists. Um, and sometimes those other things are slightly outside of the artificial life field, and maybe they don't identify with it as much as before. Um, so I think there are a number of reasons, um, you know, for... For this. So, in some regard, we've personalized the discussion with regards to these specific characters, but I think what Adam was looking for was a more general discussion about, firstly, whether this idea of the secret source, this kind of quiet, hush hush, proprietary artificial life vision, already exists, whether there is already a secret source, perhaps it exists in iRobot uh, or these kind of companies. Uh, Jeffrey, what's your thinking with regards to? this uh, kind of meta-concept of the secret source. Do you think there are companies already developing advanced artificial life systems that we don't hear about? Sure, yeah. I think there, there are probably some that we, we haven't heard about and, and won't hear about um, for, for a while because uh, they're not meant to be heard about. Perhaps they're some, somewhere deep in a game engine or somewhere deep in, a, in a, some design uh, art you know, genetic-based uh, systems. Um, so I think that there are many secret sauces um, in, in, that, are, that are being created by many different companies. Now, in terms of using the secret source for the kind of broader community, this was a discussion particularly with regards to Will Wright's Spore, um, which I 
talked about pretty well ad nauseum through both these podcasts and chats and various other means. But the idea that artificial life developers, um, for example, the folks in, in Boston associated with Graytham, can contact the local media and things like that and do spore-related events to introduce artificial life developers as being you know, affiliated in some regard with spore. Do you think there are other kind of secret source related models where general artificial life developers can can benefit in the long term? I'm not sure. Uh, are you saying are there other? Repeat the question. I mean, this, the idea of the secret source currently is the idea of some kind of closed development that we're not aware of. But yeah. do you think that in the long term, if those developments are out there and they are productive, when they do percolate to the top or when they do seek publicity, this is something that will benefit the entire artificial life community? Or do you think by the the whole methodology associated with proprietary closed source, these kind of things, that it won't be necessarily a benefit to the broader artificial life community? Well, I, I guess this kind of uh, raises the question of what what is a secret sauce. I mean, if if a secret sauce is is starts to be shared by people and then they kind of reverse engineer it, I keep thinking of Heinz ketchup or some kind of sauce, <laughs> Worcestershire. I don't know. You know, there are many secret sauces, and and you know, perhaps there are some secret sauces that are really not so secret anymore because a bunch of other <laughs> cola soda makers figured out the right combination and Pepsi, whatever. Um, do you think that's analogous in artificial life, though? Do you think the same will happen if a company starts announcing their... I mean, look at Ventnor, for example, although none of us are in the conversation are doing wet artificial life. Do you think his constant press releases and his constant saturation of media with regards to his own vision of artificial life helps you know, you, me, or Bruce with regards to our own artificial life developments. Oh, it certainly brings the topic out into into the broader public and puts more eyes on it, um, which I suppose is a good thing. And I think uh, Spore, when it's launched on September 7th, will do that too, although Spore will be mischaracterized as a evolution or artificial life game. Which, And you're saying it really isn't? Yeah, and in fact... Um, we invited Will to come to NASA and gave us he gave us a two-hour demo of it in January, and he specifically said uh, this is not artificial life. Um, you know, I'd like to do artificial life sometime, but uh, artificial life doesn't lend itself to being a playable game. Yeah, yeah. After some heavy prompting from Rudy Rucker. Yes. He, he volunteered that. Although I hope to have... Uh, um, Chris Hecker on uh, a future podcast perhaps in a couple of weeks to revisit the Artificial Life SDK for games because obviously Chris has a, a very close connection with regards to the sport development um, and I think he may be able to give some insight with regards to uh, potentials in the future for sport-like games that actually use Artificial Life. So I'm looking forward to talking to Chris about that specifically. In my discussion with Adam, the secret source moved into a kind of restaurant analogy in terms of the way uh, a restaurant would protect its secret source and the way companies have to protect their secret source. And certainly the discussion in my thinking led me towards the fact that there are a number of different ways that one can you know, run a commercial enterprise. And the thing that has always struck me is in the traditional U.S. startup model, if such a thing actually exists, there seem to be a number of startups that 
keep everything completely under wraps and you go to their website and it's a single page and you're not sure exactly what they're actually doing. And then there's a kind of extreme through to uh, open source uh, companies that release absolutely everything and have wikis and discussions and things of that nature. And my feeling is that there's nothing that precludes an artificial life company um, from being at anywhere through this spectrum. Uh, Adam's concern was that basically you can only get value in a kind of very closed proprietary system and that, although there seemed to be openness, trademark, Microsoft-related, uh, you know, sh shared views coming from just in line with regards to last week's discussion, I think there are still models that allow a degree of openness and kind of uh, community contribution whilst still actually making money. Jeffrey, you've had connections with a number of you know, artificial life, but closed source companies in some regard, particularly mm. obviously in the game space. What's mm. your sense with regards to the potential of the being, uh, you know, artificial life companies in the future that do have a component of openness to them? Well, I think I have a very recent experience uh, at Linden Lab, makers of Second Life. I was there t for two years, and um, one of the things that I did there was develop uh, some artificial life-like systems um, unfortunately, they didn't get developed fully, and I, I left, um, and uh, the company was was becoming more and more involved in trying to um, keep the system from crashing and keep users happy and, and this sort of thing, and I think they're still doing that. <laughs> um, but, um, but I think of uh, Second Life as, I mean, it's a very open, it's a very open uh, c culture. Philip Rosedale, the founder, was, was very... Uh, uh, you know, insistent on that the whole time. Every every week, he would repeat himself on how on on you know this 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 philosophy. Um, and um, the idea of putting an artificial life system, or you know, for that matter, any system where people can script behaviors of of things um, in the world and their avatars' behaviors and so on is, um, you know, I think there's a certain openness to that. Um, and I think that uh, it, it still remains a very fertile environment for an artificial life system to be built, that the users can create their own, their own ecologies. I think it still has a lot of potential. So to change the question a little bit, Bruce, if I handed you a check for half a million dollars and said, create an artificial life company, which could be profitable in a year or two years. Would you set that up with a large open source component, a small open source component, completely proprietary? Would you disappear in the mountains for that period of time? I mean, what's, what's your vision with regards to an ideal artificial life startup? Well, I'd have to take that half million dollars to make a PowerPoint presentation to go off and raise $5 million, probably. <laughs> right, right, PowerPoint. Yeah. You get a half million dollar power. Uh, it's hard to say because inevitably, and this goes back to experience with other what I call visionary technology movements, from whether it be you know robotics, machine vision, artificial intelligence, uh, expert systems and whatnot, fuzzy fuzzy logic systems from Mark Costco. I mean. All of these are powerful ideas when expressed by, say, popularizers or popularizer scientists. 
when it comes down to it, carving out something that can become a business is, you know, you, you practically lose all of the original visionary component to, to make something into a business. It's almost like there's there's a real separation between visionary tech and business tech. And sometimes entire fields, such as uh, expert systems, completely died because nothing was ever carvable into a business. And perhaps the entire line of artificial intelligence, as expressed by Lisp, proponents of Lisp, that completely died. Or almost, it's largely gone. So I mean, you can you can die on the vine as part of a visionary movement that doesn't get monetized. So I don't know what I would do with a half a million dollars. Um, a friend of mine is now who was at the Santa Fe Institute. Actually, there's an article in this month, this month Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Monthly. He works at DayJet, and DayJet provides these kind of taxi services between cities that for business people who can afford to hire an entire little tiny jet. And this fellow who has taken his artificial life background and built optimize you know algorithms to optimize x to y to z travel in the southeast on these tiny jets and whether or not it's at artificial life is you know certainly debatable it's just good it's good algorithmic uh, optimization is what it is it's nothing yeah. to do with artificial life so you know but they in the article they tout the fact that they've got these sfi a life brains working on it they just happen to be you know Good engineers. Uh, it doesn't mean matter what field they came from. I mean, certainly when I've talked to Justin, I'm not sure whether it's appeared in these, um, at least the broadcasted podcast. I think it was a section that may have been cut. But the point that I've made to him is that it is actually finding these amazing niches. Um, and I'm, I'm familiar with the uh, with the jet company. I think they were. They've been discussed in a number of publications, including Wired and Fast Company. And, yeah, exploiting the benefits of uh, specific implementations of artificial life systems. We have talked about this in the past, Bruce, in a somewhat more abstract sense, and I think we both came to the conclusion that there is something inherently fragile with regards to artificial life development. I mean, do you think that fragility makes it uh, impossible for the being to be major breakthroughs in the kind of harsh corporate light, or... Do you think that there is still possibility for a, a secret source to emerge in those kind of conditions? You know, I think that, for for example, uh, one one possible breakthrough could emerge if you could provide a if you could tie the development of an artificial life secret sauce to the modeling and simulation of real biology real biological systems, where you're able to really model what's going on in a bathtub full of catalysts, biological catalysts. And so you build this huge simulator, this grid that uh, simulates all these enmers and various other organic components and see what comes together. And if you're able to predict uh, what you're going to get out of the soup or genetic recombinations and whatnot, uh, then you have something that's a powerful tool because you don't have to do so much bench chemistry. But that is that artificial life or is it just life simulators? Um, it, it's like artificial life software, but it's very tied to modeling an objective. It's, it's like what we do with NASA. I mean, we could, we could do models and simulations of all kinds of abstract spacecraft, but because 
we focus on a real rover driving down a real crater wall on the moon, and we try to come as close <coughs> as we possibly could to how it per perform in lunar gravity and with slope slope slumping and things like that. NASA sees that, oh, that's valuable because that could save us valuable uh, design time and make a better mission. Um, so we're, we're simulating for space, but we're not doing the bigger vision of you know, simulating the cosmos. We're tied to something very physical and very re with, with a return on it. I have Maybe. a thought. Oh, I'm sorry, Bruce. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, Tom, I have a thought about, about this, this notion of an artificial life company. Perhaps that, that's a contradiction in terms. And, and as Bruce was talking, I was thinking, you know, what exactly is artificial life in this context? And in a way, when you build an artificial life system, you, you want the unexpected, right? You want novelty. You want to be surprised. And that's not what companies who are making a business want. Uh, they, they don't want to be surprised. However, um, if you have a company that's trying to solve very complex problems and you need some algorithmic, some kind of organic algorithmic uh, horsepower to, uh, to solve certain problems, you might want to bring in an artificial life consulting firm or something along those lines to kind of add, to sort of help um, uh, reach a certain kind of flexibility in terms of how to, how to deal with a complex environment or complex situation. So I was just sort of thinking about, you know, what is artificial life, and, and it's sort of you expect the unexpected. And um, in the purest sense, I, don't, I think it contradicts the, the notion of running a business. Certainly, certainly. I had a couple of thoughts, but the thing that I returned to was um, my recent chat with Brian uh, of Grayson Boston and his discussion of the kind of artificial life winter that many people talk about, but if you can put their finger on explicitly, and his discussion with regards to the role that hype played uh, in that in his, own, in his own view. My concern with regards to the idea of artificial life startups, particularly closed artificial life startups, is the way in which you can, uh, as a business that needs these kind of um, uh, people or these kind of tools, how do you actively assess the short, medium, and long-term usefulness of a product that is fundamentally closed. What's your thinking with regards to this, Bruce? Well, you know, this goes back to, as a business person, if you, your strategy, there's many companies that have talked about a secret sauce and not had any. They've been <laughs> able to create the perception that they did. And many of them, especially going into the government sector where we are, have been able to make quite a bit of hay on that. Um, <clears throat> The perception eventually is blown. I mean, if, I remember when uh, there were all there's all these rumors about this project called Ginger, which was Dean Kamen's, what turned out to be the Segway. Oh yes. And, so, and it was like touted as you know artificial gravity or you know whatever it was the most amazing thing, and it was kind of a letdown when it came out. It was a very impressive innovation, but it wasn't world changing and, um, unless you were Steve Wozniak. Um, but um, so there's always a there's always a problem doing it that way, and I I think that the world of the 21st century, the early 21st century, is a world where things don't stay secret for long at all, mm. and where software projects are done in very large teams. There's not there isn't the individual inventor in the garret anymore. It's a team thing, and that's that that's the essence of the concept of the evil grid is saying you can be a lone inventor in a garret and 
uh, come up with a whole bunch of really cool stuff, but chances are somebody else has already done it. You may have done a unique combination, but you're going to burn yourself out eventually. And the evil grid is saying, look, everything's done in teams. Everything's done in grids with ontologies and, and schemas and XML, and it's done across platforms. And artificial life has to start graduating toward that. And the only way that makes sense is to do it in an open source manner. So in a sense, the evil grid moves starkly away from uh, the model of the secret sauce A-Life project in a venture-funded firm. What interests me about um, our kind of collective legacies, and this rec- the, the ginger thing is perfectly timed because I remember um, I used to meet with people in a, in a bar in San Jose that was directly opposite Adobe. And around the same time I uh, heard about ginger, I was talking to a fellow who was a, a casual acquaintance of the people that ran the bar, and he uh, used to go golfing with Don Valentine. Anyway, just talking to him for half an hour about artificial life, he said, well, I'm a futures trader. This is exactly what I need. This is exactly the technology I need. But returning to the legacy of that whole period, and I mean, Ginger's a perfect example of this, the legacy of the dot-com slash speculative technology crash was a whole lot of reality for folks that had been living on Ginger dreams for a, a long period of time. And I think my concern, if we look, and warning folks, I'm now going to talk about podcasting as an abstract technology, but if we look at podcasting, for example, there have been three companies which have gone profitable from podcasting, and all of them have squandered the resources that they got. It went 20 million, 5 million, and 1 million, and now there is no more money that can go into podcasting. It's pretty well decided that it's it's a static means of communicating. And the thing that strikes me, and this through my correspondence with Adam and also my thinking with regards to the discussion last week with Justin, I feel that part of my editorial duties with regards to Biota is also to represent the fact that we don't want a future with regards to pure hype associated with artificial life. We need something of of real substance. And I think that's certainly my concern with regards to short-term iterations and short-term consultancies claiming to offer simulation science or artificial life services, that these need to be in some regard, vetted by either industry or the community or ideally both. And that's my uh, primary concern with regards to the, the secret source model. However, in thinking about this more, I can certainly see some position where a company in the future could come out with something that is artificial life-like. And then all of us that have been in the community musing about it for two decades, what have you, could you know easily reproduce aspects of that or even better hybridize it in the kind of super Coke, Pepsi model in the future. So in that regard, I can see that I'm in kind of two minds with regards to the benefits of the secret source. However, I think certainly the legacy of what I experienced going through 2000, 2001 on to the present is that open community discussions, which in some regard is embodied in open source, is probably a better way to actually build something of value than necessarily completely closed. Jeffrey, in your experiences, does this echo with you, or do you think that there is still, there's still benefit for small consultancy companies going in and, and selling simulation science artificial life services? I think it depends uh, entirely on what, what the purpose is. Um, if it's a if it's a game like what Electronic Arts is building, uh, they probably uh, there's there's certain benefit to keeping it closed and keeping the traditional 
um, system. I, I mean, I think it really depends on what your what your goal is because um, I'm still not sure what an artificial life company is. Perhaps you're referring to uh, what's his name, Justin. His uh, is that the one who has the the simudine? That yes, yeah, yeah. About? Justin has been very public in discussing both the strengths and the flaws of this bottle, and I want to say publicly that you know Justin has been an amazing resource in these discussions, and uh, I have a lot of respect for him. But the short-term aspects of what he does with Simudine is of some concern to me as someone who develops artificial life technology. I do think the strategies and the plans, and this has come through, I mean, this is public through the discussions that went on last week. The strategies and the plans of these kind of enterprises need to take responsibility for what they're actually doing in some regard, particularly if they're interested in interfacing in a broader community. And I think these, you know, resolve concerns that certainly have been voiced to me privately in the past week by a few folks. That folks like Justin are, are welcomed in the conversation, but they can't be seen as being people that are looking to cash in quick from artificial life. I mean, the three of us together have not cashed in quick with regards to our shared artificial life developments, and I think that has built something that has been more productive for more people. I mean, certainly, Jeffrey, with regards to Gene Paul and Darwin Pond, whilst they're not completely open source, they're certainly free and they've propagated through a lot of the, the methodologies that have been discussed with regards to open source technology. The difference is that the 1% or a tenth of a percent, depending on what time of the year or what have you, haven't had the ability to download the source, but the remaining users have had the ability to get the program, run it, think about it, tinker with it, send the URL to other people and get this kind of movement forward. So I guess you're, you're part of this open movement associated with artificial life. And my concern in talking with people like Justin and also certainly with regards to the chat that I had with Travis is that there's no way for us as a community to actually talk about something specifically with regards to what they're doing because there is this completely closed component to it. Right. Is there something wrong with that? I mean, they're a company and they have a certain, they have a certain uh, precious sort of thing that they believe that they've invented, which they can make money on. And so they've built a company around it. I don't know the details of that particular company, but um, that paradigm, I think, still holds whether they're using an artificial life technology or whether you, they're using some new twist on uh, neural nets or, or uh, a new abacus, I don't know, what, whatever. I mean, it sounds like that's a, that's, that's a certain kind of paradigm that fits a certain sort of business goal that makes sense. And, and it sounds like it's very different from the kind of uh, explorations that we've been doing. Certainly, certainly. But I think we're all, probably Bruce in particular, are familiar with virtual reality and VRML and these kind of technologies. And depending on who you talk to, and again, depending on what time of the year it is, the questions with regards to whether virtual reality could have ever taken off in the way that it was described in the late 80s and early 90s always resolves on this idea that a certain few cashed in very quickly and the technology wasn't able to develop. Certainly talking with Brian, which came through in the chat that was put out in the feed, there was some concern that Brian had, and to a certain extent I share this concern, that artificial life is still, as we talk about it in a contemporary setting, it still has elements of fragility that could easily be used to, to be cashed in quick in some regard, as we may have seen with regards to virtual reality. But the story's not over with virtual reality, is it? I mean, as far as I see it, it's just starting. It's just starting to become, the tools are just starting to become more and more available to everybody who will be able to put on their motion capture, rig up their own motion capture systems and, and hook up things, uh, cobble, cobble 
their virtual realities together in a much more uh, pluralistic way. I mean, that's I see a, a trend going in that direction, and I don't I don't think that 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 has been snuffed out. Is that your view as well, Bruce? Yeah, I think that the initial sort of VR or virtual worlds can do everything uh, belief in the mid 90s, even the early 90s with VR, immersive VR has certainly uh, fallen away and they're fi- you're finding some niches. You know, there's, the jury is still out on whether you can use virtual worlds for business meetings, yeah. how effective they are to do education and reach the public in different things. I mean, we've worked in this now for 15 years and certainly for a nice social cocktail party fashion show environment, you know, uh, Second Life and, and Market Bazaar, Second Life has, 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 caught, has caught on. But certainly of, of, of the stable of ideas and visions for the field. That's one of 99 concepts uh, that was were initially put forward. Uh, so you, you really winnow it down to make it into a business. You certainly winnow it down to a very narrow scope. So we have talked a little bit in the past about this idea of technical winters, certainly with regards to avatars and also with regards to artificial life. Do you think that these kind of ideas are always going through seasonal variances in terms of whether the technology is hot or whether the technology is simmering or hibernating? I mean, is, is this what you're both describing in some regard? Well, Jeffrey, you've been through several winters and several <laughs> times, right? I, yeah, I think winter is a relative term, and winter is, you know, it may be that, that right now avatar is, there's, you'll find a lot more of the word avatar if you Google than you, than you did before, and then perhaps than you will later. But it may resurface under a different name. So I think that virtual worlds, as people have been talking about it, um, will die off. But, uh, but the, the, the very phenomenon itself won't go away. It'll just keep resurfacing in different manifestations. Hopefully, each manifestation is more open and democratic each time. But I think that I don't. I think the notion of a winter is is relative. And sometimes it's the result of a bunch of media hype dying off, which what's doesn't really mean anything. What's interesting to me is if you look back at other other te- technologies, and the one I think that really fits the virtual world side, and this is not nothing relating to artificial life, is, is the medium of film. You know, in the uh-huh. in the 1890s and the early 1900s, it was a early adopters hobbyist. It was denigrated. It was clumsy. It was short, un, you know, unfulfilling to some degree uh, medium, and then grandmasters started, and then the studio system started, and but one, one forgets that Edison had the, the kinetoscope, which was a VR-like thing where you put your head in and you watch 50 feet of film going through, um, and that was his idea. It was very similar to VR of the early 90s. Mm. And and it didn't succeed, and it was you know the smartest guy of his age thought that's how you would deliver film, and so virtual worlds had the similar the parallel with immersive VR, and then they came to the screen, and then they sort of exploded when they were on the internet, and that was the era that I chronicled. But film was a real bumpy road for the longest time, and then fun, finally in the 1920s, especially in the 30s, it became a very big business. But it went through several transitions and, and several generations of practitioners before it caught on. Yeah. And film is an interesting example because uh, it can be equally equated to contemporary game development in some regards. In fact, it's a very interesting technical model to describe a, a wide variety of technologies. 
ultimately it was the commercialization of the medium that got it to catch on. Do you think that this commercialization is really critical in order for something like artificial life to uh, to catch on? And if the commercialization exists, do you think it will come through something like game development? Do you think it will come through some abstractive industry? Jeffrey, why don't I start with you? What's your thinking with regards to that? I actually wonder whether artificial life can be commercialized. I'm wondering whether it can at all as such. I think that games have been commercialized, and games have an element of agentry, unpredictability, some AI, and you know some of the little bits and pieces of, of artificial life. And so maybe in that sense, it already has been commercialized, but not in the pure sense that we talk about it. I am not sure if it can be commercialized. Film could have been because it was a science, it was a technology and an art, which was all about storytelling. And um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is some commercial business a usage of this. What's your thinking, Bruce? I think that really, when it comes down to it, I mean, our, our species is 99% dedicated to making a living and paying the mortgage and putting food on the table. And there's a 1% uh, left over for sort of visionary, wacky things. And I think that artificial life is solidly in that 1% and that as things drip out of it, there may be inventions that drip out of it yeah. to put the food on the table, but they're not artificial life. And so artificial life may be like AI. It, it may be like religions or belief in God. It may be the unattainable, but you're ever questing for it, and creative things come out, uh, come out of it. There's a second point of view, which is one that I put forth a lot that's could be hard to understand or controversial, which is that artificial life is merely uh, nature's way of trying to get us, using us to create a new medium for itself, <laughs> uh, to propagate itself in the future. And that's a very science fiction-y idea in saying that, hey, we're just tools of nature, and A-life is, is saying, okay, come on, primates, build me a new model. You know, that's... i gotta, I got to get off this planet, or i got to survive the heating of the sun, or i got to... Like we got to go forward, and, and, and if you guys aren't going to do this, I'll have to try with the, next time with the arthropods. Hey, Bruce, I'm gonna, let's call that the selfish meme. What do you say? The, the selfish A-life meme? Yeah, it's, it's got to it's gotta get reproduced, so we're, so we're its host. Yeah, and that, anyway. that's a very, very visionary position. But it's also one that has permeated through NASA. I mean, this is what I've heard in recently in NASA interviews is, as I said initially, the Daimerian vision has really struck a chord at NASA with regards to how to actually do these, uh, you know, unmanned uh, Martian, you know, landers and things like that. So, I mean, I think this vision is already slowly working its way through the likes of NASA, and then hopefully it'll hit science fiction. It's already well established in science fiction, but you're absolutely right. Tomorrow night, I'm going to have 12,000 people. I'm on stage at 10.45 p.m. at Yuri's Night at NASA. Oh, Yuri's Night, yeah. In a hangar, and I'm doing a presentation on asteroids and comments of why they're important to visit and why they're, they could be a, a, the future, the stepping stones to the solar system. And my last point is that that evening I'm going to show all kinds of great movies and simulations we've done of missions. But the last point is if we're going to use asteroids and comets to, for our resources to go out and live in the solar system, we probably have to evolve 
a biology that is very different than Earth's biology, and we have to create creatures that can live in and on those objects. And then they are our partners, our synthetic partners into inhabiting, utilizing those resources. So if that's a Damarian vision, you'll be hearing it a little bit uh, tomorrow at Yuri's Night. Wonderful. So we've gone full circle, and it seems like if the three of us continue talking and other folks continue talking as part of Bio to the Secret Source, will never uh, truly take over in some regard. But uh, next week, we're going to be discussing the EvoGrid. So we'll, we'll have an hour of chatting with Bruce about the current directions, and we've got Roy Plotnick and Richard Gordon contributing as well currently, Bruce. There seem to be all kinds of intellectual forces coming together uh, in the EvoGrid. So I guess you've got you've got a week to prep for that, Bruce. Yeah, and in fact, I've been asked to talk about the Evo Grid on Wednesday night at the Asilomar Microcomputer Workshop. So I'll be down there trying to trying trying to rehearsal for Friday on for the Asilomar people. This is really why we need the Biota CDs everywhere. So you can just take a handful of Biota podcast CDs down there, so people can can get the Biota goodness and start contributing and start collaborating and and talking and Folks, we have to wrap up. Unfortunately, we have three minutes left. So I'm not sure whether we've actually uh, actually answered Adam's question. Maybe we'll do this at a future Saturday, 10 a.m. Pacific chat so Adam can participate and other folks in Europe and on the East Coast can participate. If you want to contribute a topic similar to Bruce this evening with regards to the Evo Grid, get in contact, tom at noble8.com. The four books that you could get are on the biota.org slash podcast page. Bruce, you've already pretty well outlined what you're going to be doing over the next week. Is there anything else on the horizon that you're looking forward to? Nothing, just getting caught up on the, all the reading on, on the, the, the biota list. Yes, it's quite extreme for even those of us that follow it in real time. And Jeffrey, are you and Bruce going to be getting together sometime in in the future to discuss all this stuff and more. Bruce, we had a we had talked about getting together for dinner sometime soon, so I'm still up for that. We should maybe even on uh, the 24th of April. 24th of April sounds good. We can talk uh, Internet Archives. A lot of projects going on there too. Totally, yeah. And in fact, you'll see Brewster tomorrow night if the crowds aren't too full. Say hi to him. Great, wonderful. Cool. Well, thank you both very much for participating this evening. I feel this is probably going to be like a number of the topics that we've already discussed, an ongoing topic of conversation as more people join the conversation. The next Biota Live will be next Friday at 8 p.m. Pacific when we'll be discussing Bruce's EvoGrid. Thank you both very much. Thank you. You're welcome.